I'm Kate Daniels. This is really an educational moment, I feel, as we meet Dr. David Bissonnette, an associate professor of nutritional science at Minnesota State University and the author of an important new book, Insatiable, A Nation's Unappeasable Hunger. We know, because we do hear this stated, that our nation is suffering an epidemic of obesity. So while we know this, we never quite get all the information as to the reason this is so, beyond figuring that some people, many of us, just eat too much. But what is truly going on? New research published in the journal Public Health Nutrition found that readily available packaged foods and beverages have a ton, that's 2,000 pounds, more added sugar today than they did 15 years ago. Drinks are 36% sweeter. Sugar content in packaged foods shot up by 9%. So there's some reason for the obesity epidemic. It seems clear to me that we need to become much better informed so we make better choices when we shop, when we choose what we eat, and definitely what we feed to our children. This is very sobering. Dr. Bissonnette's life study has been in this field of nutrition, and he joins us to share some key information from his research. Dr. David Bissonnette, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Oh, it's a very big pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. And I am very excited uh, with some trepidation as well, but but it is excitement to have this conversation uh, about obesity, not because it's so wonderful, but because I think that here we have an opportunity to look at some of the, the causes, the reasons why our country, why our nation is uh, so obese, so overweight. Yes. The, uh, the book that I just released, Insatiable, um, A Nation's Unappeasable Hunger, is an exploration of that. It goes deeper than what other investigators do. It really is a culmination of 20 years of research that's gone into a book that sort of looks at obesity from a very broad perspective, you know, unusually broad. It's a cross-section of medicine, science, history, uh, theology, philosophy, and you know, it's a it's a book that explores deeply. And that is the thing that I feel is so critical here is because we want to look for quick fixes so often and we're just looking at surface solutions without realizing root causes. Correct. Correct. We are, um, you know, the, the medical community, no fault of their own, uh, are inundated with uh, obese and overweight people that carry a slew of secondary diseases that are, that, that are creating a medical disaster in the United States with chronic diseases, right? So 74% of American adults, roughly, uh, are either overweight or obese, and we have the same problem sort of growing in the children where we have a little more than 30% of children, that's 2 to 19, who are either overweight and obese. So obesity, is, you know, has secondary effects, right? This is not a diversity issue. It's an issue of profound illness that is, you know, that is affecting our healthcare system and unfortunately our doctors and dietitians. So the, the clinics are inundated truly with people that are, you know, type 2 diabetic, cardiovascular disease, uh, and the list goes on, right? And so we have this heavy burden on our society and the doctors are treating it 
uh, and have been treating it, as well as the dietitians, right, over the last 30 to 40 years with uh, diet restrictions. Uh, they don't work, right? A lot of studies now have shown that they're roughly about a 1% to 3% success rate, and that's measured over you know, five to seven years. So, yes, most people lose weight quickly on a diet. You calorically restrict them, they'll lose weight, but they don't keep the weight off, and that's what these studies have shown. So it's really a 1% to 3% success rate. Uh, so now doctors are doing appetite suppressants because the diets don't work, right? And even surgeons are getting into the game with gastric bypass surgery for, um, you know, uh, for adults, but also for adolescents, which is really, an, you know, an unverified uh, sector of the population. This is a radical surgery. So it's, like you said, it's like a Band-Aid approach but it's not really solving the problem. The question is, you know, how, um, how did these people get into the, this large physical deformity, right? This is what we'd call, a, you know, the morbid obesity uh, over, over that period of time, right? So is, and so, you know, controversy there. And so today... I am hoping, I think this is going to be a two-pronged conversation. So for today's segment, I am thinking that we look at not this, not so much superficial, but some of the more key things that are going on right now, perhaps that we could address. I'm thinking specifically like sugar. Sugar's in everything. And I find myself looking at the sugar content. Uh, and I think probably a lot of people do. But that sugar in our foods, is it? does it have like an addiction trigger to it? The sugar itself does not. You know, sugar is natural. They're not putting in, uh, you know, a chemical variant, except, you know, you could say that the non-nutritive sweeteners are kind of a, uh, you know, a variant to that. What we've seen happening in the last while is uh, an increase in the consumption of uh, non-nutritive sweeteners, which we call artificial sweeteners. So in the Australian study uh, that's been quoted recently and in other studies, we see non-nutritive sweeteners going up 36%. So that's, um, that's in light of you know, the counseling, the recommendation by government, um, you know, by physicians to decrease added sugar. So they go, okay, we'll do artificial sweeteners. And so we see artificial sweeteners going up. Added sugar has still gone up 9%. Right, and what's what's happening is the, the added sugar is insidious throughout the the food supply. It's everywhere, but when they do, um, when when they look closely at it, what they say, what they find is uh, the added sugar. So the added sugar is the sugar that's not in the food naturally. It's been added by the food industry, right? To contrast that with natural occurring sugar. So this added sugar, the researchers are telling us, and this is recent research, uh, you could say that, you know, half to, you know, 67% uh, are coming from two main sources. So it makes the understanding of this pretty easy, right? Um, Sugar-sweetened beverages is the first, and baked goods. So that kind of, um, you know, for people that want to make a difference, right, these are the two things to take an aim at, right? So um, artificial sweeteners and baked goods. And and this is where most of the added sugar is coming into our diet. Now, looking at the, uh, I'm going to call them the synthetic sweeteners then, they 
sometimes it says that they have zero calories. So is that misleading? Because that still is something that's going into our bodies and, and affecting them. So does that have a negative impact on our brain? Well, they've never been able to show, uh, a ne- well, <laughs> directly, organically, no, it doesn't have any specific nefarious effect. And to answer the, the first question, uh, zero calories does mean zero calories. Our lab here at our uh, research, um, uh, where, where I do research here at the university, uh, you know, looked at that in, in animal models, and indeed, you know, it is zero calories. But this is what artificial sweeteners do. Uh, they don't provide you with the calories, but they maintain the brain's desire for sweetness. And this is not the right thing to do if you're trying to cut back on sugar. So you're eating this, this um, non-nutritive sweetener or artificial sweetener, and you're saying, gosh, you know, I didn't take in my 80 calories of sugar that I normally get. This is really good. But your brain is still getting fed the sweetness, right? So what they call the hedonic centers or the pleasure centers of the brain are still getting excited. So when you're finished your, uh, your art, you know, I don't know, your soft drink on artificial sweetener, uh, you're, you're still looking for sweet products. And what they're finding in some of the research is that there's an increased caloric intake elsewhere in the diet, and they have found that people have actually, in some circumstances, put on weight by actually consuming artificial sweeteners. Now, there's a way, uh, you know, if you want to get into the real details, there's a way to sort of, um, uh, you know, stratify that, that data. It's not everyone that gains weight on that, right? But it is found in a certain segment of the population. So there's that component. The other component is that these artificial sweeteners uh, are artificial. So they're foreign to the body, and you can expect that the body's going to do some, some weird things, right? And, and so those that specialize in the, the, the study of the microbiome in the gastrointestinal tract find effectively weird stuff taking place. So the, the good sort of microbacteria in the colon, for example, uh, scatters. It scatters and leaves room for more nefarious bacteria to come in when artificial sweeteners are coming in. So you're right. And that's intuitive, right? That's very intuitive. I'm eating something that is, you know, foreign. It's artificial. Uh, yes, your intuition, and it's going to start doing some funny things to your body. To your body is actually quite correct. And that's exactly what they're finding. And that creates long-term health problems if you persist in consuming these artificial sweeteners. And that's the kind of thing I was thinking would happen uh, with using too much artificial any th- additive to our foods is what it does to our organs that expect to have just natural substances going through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the, there's recent papers, recent discussions about ultra-processed foods, right? These are <sighs> foods that go through a thorough um, breakdown and reconstitution, right? To contrast that, contrast that with minimal, minimally processed foods. So, the, so what they found is the ultra-processed foods are actually creating health problems in the population. This is actually uh, breaking news, right? It's come out in the last five to six years. Uh, we've never been able to show that. I remember back in the 70s and 80s, people were saying, oh, yeah, processed food makes you sick, and 
you know, and nobody could actually show that scientifically because no one knew how to set up the studies and what are you going to break down and what are you going to look at. Well, now that we are well into the future and our ability to do that with large populations, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, are, are pretty good. And so what they're finding is um, uh, increases, right? So if you're, if you're eating ultra-processed foods chronically over a long period of time, you're looking at uh, a rise in the prevalence of cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular uh, disease, and, you know, things of that nature. So there's definitely nefarious health outcomes, and that's a, that's a breakthrough, right? We've never been able to show that. So, we're, so what is an ultra-processed food? Well, it's something like, you know, hot dogs and bacon. Um, you could look at uh, a lot of the uh, fast foods, for example, the chips. Um, all of these kinds of products that, that really I have always argued in the classroom aren't technically foods, right? You've got French fries in there. People like to say, oh, French fries are food, but it isn't. It's so heavily processed, right, that, <laughs> that there's not a single nutrient left in, in the French fries. So it's a special category. So I'm not, I'm not putting in all processed foods in there, but what they call ultra-processed foods. And I'm glad you named them because we need to be super aware of of that in our life. If we're doing it, then, like, cut it out. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that's right, because these are things that you can singularly eliminate without necessarily disturbing, but, you know, disturbing what you're doing. But the, the problem is, you know, a study that was done in 2000 showed that, that uh, Americans were consuming 50% of their calories right, from ultra-processed food. So this is a serious indictment to the quality of the American diet and what Americans are actually eating. So to get, to get those calories, right, the 50% of those calories, to change towards something that's more, whole, uh, more wholesome is actually a, a huge task, right? Not an easy thing to do. No, it isn't. And part of it is that um, this is... Our lifestyle, where we're just so much into this quick fixes and yep. and fast food mentality. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, and and it has a lot to do with um, with the fact that you know the um, the food industry has um, has basically you know taken uh, taken hold right of our food inventory. So um, uh, R. J. Reynolds and um, uh, Philip Morris took over Nabisco and General Foods back in the 80s, right? So when the cigarette companies went under, these guys took hold of the food companies. And then they started to peddle food in the same way you could say that they peddled cigarettes. And so they, what basically happened was uh, a prominence, a rise in the prominence of food. So, so that took place, right? Greater, much greater availability of food took place in the 80s. And then the portion sizes, right, and, and all that sort of increased. And then we saw uh, a very, very good Madison Avenue marketing strategy. Let's make Americans a snacking country. And that's where we saw snacking in bookstores, snacking in hair salons, snacking all over the place, right, in school gyms and churches. And, and all of a sudden the caloric intake of Americans uh, increased by three to 500 extra calories. Uh, and, but interestingly, the availability of calories in the marketplace 
uh, grew by 800 calories per person per year. So that was the availability. And, and so what happened is food industry saturated an already saturated food supply, right? It's not that we were, we were lacking in food in the 1980s. We were, we were eating quite enough, but they supersaturated us with food and created a snacking mentality, which still goes on today. Yes, and and that has become such a habit, and yes. habits are, are such a challenge in our mm. life, aren't they? So it's well, become this hard. habit, right? Yep. Yeah, it's a habit, and, and it's hard to get out of it, right? And what's happening is this has been going on, like I said, since the 1980s, long enough for you know a lot of children to have been influenced by that. So, so think about the devastating impact of young children being taught to snack, to snack on bad foods, right, to snack on the fast foods and the junk foods. And they grow into adolescents and young adults, have children of their own, and teach the same thing. So what's taking place here, and I go into that in the book Insatiable, which, by the way, has its own website, insatiable1.com, right? And what happens is they, you know, they, they sort of lose their reference point and, and they lose touch with tradition. And, and tradition is actually very important in ensuring a healthy, good food supply. Why is that? Well, tradition is actually time-tested. And what we're finding, right, with all of the um, nutritional science mistakes that have taken place over the last 30, 40 years, that tradition actually was truer than the science. I'll give you one example of that. I go, in this, uh, go over this in the book, but, you know, you remember lard, Lard was used by the grandmothers back many, many generations ago to do the baked goods. When the Harvard studies came out in the 1950s, and the initial research was showing that cholesterol was really bad for you, right, in the food. So they started, um, that is, the doctors and so forth, started telling grandma, who is probably, I guess you'd call great-grandma by now, and, you know, you've got to stop using lard, and you've got to now use the new science shortening. And so grandmas abandoned their lard, which, by the way, contained 50 to 60 percent monounsaturated fat. Really, really good for you. Not good for you to eat a lot of lard, but you have to remember that this generation were, you know, a lot of them were farmers and they were burning 5,000 calories a day out in the field, right? So they were getting a lot of, you know, a lot of calories. But that, that lard, uh, despite the fact that it had about 40% saturated fat, had a lot of really good fat. Well, now they went to the, um, the shortenings, and what is it that we discovered many, many decades later in the 1990s is that the shortening was worse than the lard. It actually increased cardiovascular disease by two factors, right? So it was a double risk, and so science had pablum, really, all over its face. Oh goodness, but but yet we're not going to be uh, cycling back to the lard. We have of course the the oils, the canola yeah, oils and olive yeah. oils, right? Yeah, but right. but I'm making the point that you know tradition actually should be listened to. And what what's happened with the industrial revolution and I extensively go over that. So that's the historical component of the book. The industrial revolution created mass production of food and it it severed the link with tradition. And we saw a lot of homes that were self-sufficient, um, you know, for food and for other things, 
change into um, basically a consuming unit, right? Families became consuming units by the 1930s. And then a lot of what happened afterwards, and I won't go into the details there, but we lost, we lost touch with our food traditions. And so then we started to learn how to eat following the new science, right? And that's the point I'm really trying to make. Yes. And that created a lot of problems. It, yes, because if we look at the history then, it, it was much more balanced. We don't see uh, much of the obesity. That was probably, I, I guess, I'm going to guess, a health issue uh, that caused that, whereas now... Uh, as time went on and looking at the 70s and beyond, so the last 50 years, yep. as we had all this move uh, towards processed foods and it mm-hmm. added sugars, yep. it, didn't that then create more cravings and addictions? Yes, we, we have addictions and we have a food industry uh, that became very sophisticated, right? So they started to develop, um, you know, taste panels and food evaluation, sensory evaluation labs that were looking for what they call the bliss point. So now we can get into, right, what is the food industry doing here? They are trying to maximize the sale of food, right? So, so we've got a problem taking place, right? We have local industry disappearing with the Industrial Revolution. Where are they disappearing to? Well, to central, um, central locations away from the community. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the industry no longer really has that proximity to the human, to the human factor, right? The industry is not producing now their food like they locally did to benefit that population. Well, you know, let's be careful with the fat. and No, no, no. And now it's different. Now it's centrally produced, and they're very profit-oriented, and they're not really producing the food to help the population remain healthy. That is not in their goals and objectives anymore. It's about mass production and surviving, right, as a true competitive agent or, um, you know, corporation. And so they started to produce, you know, massive amounts of food, looking for the bliss point, which is the, the higher, you know, the highest point um, that uh, the individual will uh, basically appreciate the sugar, right? So they, they bring the sugar as high as they can go, and, and that's what they call the bliss point. The bliss point is the point of highest enjoyment. And so they, they ha- there's a separate bliss point for adults, and there's a separate bliss point for children. And so the bliss point for children, uh, what the industry discovered is they've got to increase the sugar in, like, children's um, cereals higher than they do in adults, and that's exactly what they do. Oh, yes, sugar is not good for children in large quantities, but the industry doesn't really care about that. The industry understands through their sensory evaluation uh, lab that they are going to sell more Fruit Loops or whatever cereal that they're selling, in taking the example of cereals, if they bring the sugar level up to this particular level. And that's what the bliss point is, very very sophisticated, and yes, it causes what we call an addiction, although people are very careful in the industry to talk about addiction. Uh, it creates what they call repeat acquisition behavior, right? a sophisticated way of saying, I can't wait till tomorrow where I can have that cereal again. This really sounds illegal. It's, 
not. <laughs> but it should be. It really isn't illegal. Um, the United States uh, early on set up, um, you know, basically uh, the monitoring system of the food to allow, and this was way back in the early 1900s, uh, to set up, you know, it was like the Federal Trade Commission, right? So, so what they established is that early on they decided that we're going to allow the food industry to move freely for the sake of commerce. They didn't want to bind down the food industry with all kinds of rules and regulations that would stifle um, industry, that would stifle productivity and, you know, money, basically, right? And so somehow, I'm sure, through lobbying of various sorts, they decided to lay off on the rules and regulations uh, um, to allow this sort of thing to develop. Uh, if you wanted to see the difference, you just have to go to Europe, where they actually didn't have a freewheeling uh, Federal Trade Commission that sort of, you know, let things free. They were more rigorous. And you could see that difference. That's why their food supply is more heavily regulated, uh, but also more wholesome. Oh, my goodness. This is just so amazing and overwhelming and so important, which yes. is the reason we do need to have another uh, conversation. Oh, uh, I think so. Yes, because I think we've just uh, touched the surface of, of where we need to go with this. Yep. Um, it, actually, the phrase that came to mind is that you've just whetted our ap- appetite. Ah, <laughs> et voila. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, we we need to look at this more deeply. And so I, I am just so... Uh, amazed and enthralled with all the research that you've done. Well, uh, it's been going on. Like, this is my career book, so to speak, right? So as an associate professor of nutrition, I've been doing, you know, obesity and all kinds of different other research, and and this has been sort of going along in the background. So 15 to 20 years of looking in and thinking about these larger issues and bringing it together in this book, insatiable1.com is where you can go to get more information. I've got videos up there for people that just want to know about more nutrition and more of the cutting-edge controversies. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned it. Uh, definitely to check out the website, and also uh, people can find you on Twitter. They can, yes, um, absolutely. Uh, DJ Bassan won. Great. Well, this has been so informative, and I really uh, look forward to further conversation on this because if it really impacts our life at in so many areas and really just really at the core, and we're going to go more deeply into that, into uh, the further aspects, the philosophical, the spiritual in our next conversation, oh, I trust. Good. right? I look forward to it. I as well. Thank you so greatly for your time this morning and all this great work that you are doing. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great joy, great fun. Let's have fun again. Okay, that sounds like a really great plan.